So, um, I don't have to convince, I don't think, anybody in this room the fact that injustice is alive and well in the world out there. It's all over the news uh, of injustice, right? So, Syrian civil war going on. There's families being uprooted, uh, lots of injustices being done to them at the hands of an extremist Islamic regime, school shootings. People are killed, hurt, damaged for the rest of their lives, things that still will be with them for the rest of their lives. It's not a hard case to make. Injustice is alive and well in the world out there, but injustice is alive and well in the world in here as well. I know that for a fact a lot of you in this room have or currently are experiencing some form of injustice, thanks to several of you who were brave enough to share uh, your story with me and allow me to share some of these got four of them. It's an African-American student involved in Veritas told me about a, a white professor that she had. And the first week of class, this professor noticed, as she's standing up front and talking, there are only two African-Americans in the entire class. And for whatever reason, she decided uh, to say, wow, you guys, you don't have blonde hair like everybody else. You know, the student eventually got over that comment because she realized she needed to do well in this class and needed to develop a relationship with this professor, especially for her capstone project. And the capstone project was a report on this African-American, historic African-American district in downtown Columbia. So she begins, you know, meeting with his professor, and the professor challenged her to do good work because, and I quote, y'all don't know about y'all's history. It's a white professor speaking to an African-American student. Uh, despite this, she has a lot of patience. She continues to meet with her. The professor actually says this is a good project, probably going to get an 89 or a 90. A couple weeks later, submits it on Blackboard, gets the final grade, and it's a 59. She never found out why. Another story. Um, students shared how she's just now coming to terms with the fact that her boyfriend in high school was sexually abusive for a long time in their relationship. Long time. And yet nothing was ever done about it. He was never confronted, never paid for his actions. Nothing. Another student shared uh, with me about how her dad was physically and verbally and emotionally abusive to her and to her mom for years and years, starting from a long time ago, especially in the elementary school and middle school years. And the thing that has affected her most is that she never really felt the support that she wanted from him. That's something that she's not gotten over that's with her every single day of her life, the injustice staring her in the face. What is she going to do with that? Last story. The guy has had and has an extremely verbally and physically abusive dad. One of the most painful memories that he told me happened when he was 10. For whatever reason, uh, he's about to fall asleep in his room, and his dad comes in and starts telling him the story of when he was born. And his direct quote was, when you were born, I didn't love you. When you were born, I didn't love you. You know, he sat in his bed questioning, why would my dad say that to me? Left him with a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety, a lot of issues that he's still dealing with today. Now, those aren't the only, only ways people are facing injustice every day. It's alive and well in this room in ways that I don't know, in ways that a lot of us don't know. But, but it brings up the question, what do we do about it? What, what do we do when stuff like that is happening in our world out there and in the world in here? You know, sooner or later, we've all got to answer that question because we all know people who are in positions of authority who aren't fit to hold their power. We all know there's bosses who are not fit to be bosses. We all know parents who are not fit to be parents, friends not fit to be friends. On and on we could go. So when we see this, when we hear it, when we experience it, what do we do? 
in the end, there's really only two options. We can take revenge or we can leave revenge behind. Take revenge or leave revenge behind. You know, taking revenge is, is pervasive in our culture. I think we all kind of know what this could look like. We see in movies, see in television, see it on social media, see it all over the place. One example that, that I've always stuck with me, I see it really clearly, uh, it's in the movie Man on Fire. It's long, you know, about 10 or 15 years old now, starring Denzel Washington. So Denzel's this washed up mercenary and kind of on, you know, hit the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, but he gets this job protecting this five-year-old girl. And so he begins, actually begins to develop a relationship with the girl, uh, kind of revives and brings him back to life, and she begins to love him as a father. He loves her as a daughter, but then she gets kidnapped. And his righteous anger boils over, and he wants to go back to his old self. And he says, I'm going to get revenge. And so there's a scene in the movie where he has broken into this old couple's apartment, and he's standing over kind of this public square, because that's he knows the kidnappers are going to go through. He's literally got an RPG bazooka on his shoulder. And this old, old couple, they say to him, they say, you know, in the church, it's better to forgive. And Denzel, now in the movie, it makes the line seem kind of awesome, but as you think about it, it's like, I don't know if that's good. He says this, he says, forgiveness is between people and God. It's my job to arrange the meeting. It's my job to arrange the meeting. You know, I'm in charge of taking revenge. It's up to me. There's another example of taking revenge found in the lyrics of an artist. I think her name is Taylor Swift. You guys might have heard of her. Let's listen. Let's listen. I don't like your perfect crime. How you laugh when you lie. You said the gun was mine. Is cool? No, I don't like you. Who's dancing? Several people. That is funny. It's catchy. We don't quite think about it, but then you, you stop and you, you read the lyrics and you think, wait a minute. She says, I've got a list of names and yours is in red underlined. The song's all about taking revenge. Something has done something to her and so she's going to return the favor. Now, I mean, I wonder why it's one of the top hits. I think a lot of reasons that people can identify with it. So when we face injustice, we can take revenge for ourselves or on the opposite side, we can leave revenge behind. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 22 says, Do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and he will avenge you. So this sounds really good and virtuous. And I think there's a part of us, all of us really, that would want this to be true. That we'd love to do this in the face of injustice. But then there's another part of us that just doesn't want to do that. It seems kind of boring. It seems near impossible you know, another part of it is if we leave revenge behind, that means that the bad guys win. If Denzel doesn't kill those kidnappers, what happens to the girl? If I don't take matters into my own hands, then the bad guys win. Whoever the bad guys are, that roommate, that professor, that boyfriend or girlfriend, whoever it is, what do we do in the face of injustice? Take revenge or leave it behind? We're continuing our march slowly but surely through the Old Testament books of First. And 2 Samuel, and tonight we get to a very important story that's going to help us answer this question. You see, one of the main characters of the book, David, he's facing extreme injustice. When I say extreme injustice, I mean extreme injustice from King Saul, of all people. And David has to decide what he's going to do. 
what he's going to do in the face of it. So go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Before we get to those verses, let me kind of set them up just a little bit. So if you remember some of the context here, Saul, King Saul was anointed by Samuel. And he was called to be the king of Israel. He was supposed to lead the people into their calling of being a blessing to the nations, of ridding sin in the world and restoring, showing people what it's like to have a restored relationship with God. But he failed. He was unfaithful. He decided to do his own thing, play by his own rules. And so in 1 Samuel 15, 28, Samuel tells him that the kingdom will be torn away from you and, catch this, given to a neighbor of yours. It's really interesting because Saul knows generally somebody's going to take his place, but he doesn't know who. And so from this point on, he's extremely paranoid. He looks at, looks at everybody as if they're a threat, as if they could replace him. And so that actually sheds a little more interesting light on David and Goliath. A couple weeks ago, Kyle we learned, told us how we showed how David defeated Goliath. And after that, Saul made him one of the highest generals in Israel. And he's actually really successful. He has lots of military success. He's gaining more and more popularity, more recognition, more respect. And Saul becomes threatened by this. He actually turns on David because he realizes, hey, this neighbor, this is the guy. He's the one who's going to knock me from my throne. He's going to be the one who's going to replace me as king. Saul is starting to realize that God has departed from him and is now with David. And so, as 1 Samuel 18.29 says, Saul still became more afraid of David. That's him, David. And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. And so, in the next seven chapters of the book, before we get to chapter 24, Saul is literally chasing and hunting down and trying to kill David. He tries to kill him uh, by sending David on some, impossibly, uh, some impossible military expeditions against the Philistines, hoping the Philistines would do the dirty work for him. Didn't, didn't work. David's successful. David tries to kill David. Saul tries to kill David with a spear, not once, not twice, but three times. He sends men to assassinate David in his home. He openly and explicitly declares he wants David dead. He even orders the deaths of a lot of priests who actually harbored David when he's on the run. So Saul is vindictive. He's murderous. He's out to kill David. Right before our, our, our uh, what am I trying to say, verses, Saul has to leave to go fight the Philistines for a second. So he's right on David's tail, has to stop for a second, go deal with the Philistines, and then he's back. Deals with that, now he's back. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David's in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men, these are like Navy SEALs, the tip of the sword, guys, 3,000 of them, from Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. I think last January, a couple of Januarys ago, the Richters went to Israel. They took some pictures. Not this one. This is En Gedi, kind of a high up view of where David is hiding. The next one has a picture of a cave. Maybe it's the cave, but a cave like this is where David would be hiding in the wilderness and where Saul and his men somehow found out that David was in one of these caves. Let's keep going back in verse 3. So, he came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul, being a person, went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave, so they're hiding in the cave, and David's men, they said to David, this is the day the Lord spoke of, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And so David, he crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him. 
for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. So David's been on the run for months. He's been anointed king at this point by Samuel back in chapter 16, and yet David hasn't been able to fully claim his kingship, fully claim the throne because Saul is still in the picture. And so I don't know about you, if I were in David's shoes, I'd have a lot of questions, a lot of issues going on right now, right? He's, he, he's been anointed king. I'd be frustrated. I'd be confused, and I'd want to know, why can I not become king? Why is Saul continuing to pursue me? This is unjust. I think David's men, they felt the same way too. And that's why you can understand in verse 4, they tell David, this is the day the Lord spoke of. And here's why they said this. So David, they know, well, we know for sure too, David has been anointed king by Samuel. King Saul's son is named Jonathan. He has abdicated openly his right to rule. He says, David, my best friend over there, he's going to be king. So those arguments seem pretty sound. What more, what other sign could David want? And so David listens to him and he starts, he creeps up in the, in the dark uh, and rather than killing Saul, he cuts off a corner of his robe. Now, Saul probably took his robe off while he did his business, laid in a pile or something, not while he was actually doing his business. Uh, probably too many details. Anyway, after he cut, off, cut the robe, David's conscience was stricken. Why? Well, for starters, the, this robe of Saul's, it was a symbol of his kingly authority. And so when David cut the robe, it was a sign that he did not acknowledge and support God's current choice it was as if David was saying, I know better than you, God. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. So even though Saul had forfeited his right to reign because of his unfaithfulness, David knew that that did not give him the right to take revenge. That's why his conscience was stricken, because he couldn't, because it proved that he showed some hostility and ill will towards God, and he didn't like that at all. You see, David believes and trusts that eventually he's going to be a king, but that's going to be a gift of God. That's going to be God's doing not his own. He's going to leave revenge behind, not take revenge for himself. Let's keep going. Verse 8 of chapter 24. So David went out of the cave. He says, Saul, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And David said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay a hand on my Lord, because he's the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. He shows it to him. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I didn't kill you. See, there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. May the Lord be our, our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. What does David do in the face of injustice? He leaves revenge. He leaves vengeance behind. He leaves vengeance behind. This is perhaps the, the high point of, of David's life and character. When he says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. I can't I can't imagine saying that. Yet David, he says it. He does what Saul can't in terms of being faithful to God. You see, his character embodies what Israel's king was designed to do. Trust the Lord by leaving revenge behind. He didn't take it for himself. And so what God expected of David, he expects of me, and he expects of you, he expects of all of us, he expects that of anybody who wants to be 
follower of Jesus, who wants to be a Christian, somebody who wants to live as a part of God's people. This is what he expects of us, letting God take care of vengeance in the face of injustice. And so for the rest of the time, here's what we're going to do. Two simple questions. What could this look like? What does leaving vengeance to the Lord, leaving revenge behind, what does that look like? And how the heck do you do that? Two pretty important questions. Let's start with this, what it looks like. Here's what it doesn't look like. It does not mean that we tolerate any sort of injustice. We don't tolerate any sort of injustice. If you went to True False Film Fest last weekend, a couple weekends ago, there's a film called Love Means Zero. It's about this crazy tennis coach named Nick Boletari. Great film. You should watch it. Uh, but what was intriguing to me was his relationship with Andre Agassi. So I started uh, listening to his autobiography, and there's a story uh, in Andre's autobiography about his dad. He thought um, Nick Boletari, this coach, was bad. His dad is even worse. So Agassi is a tennis prodigy from the time he's in diapers, and his dad knew it. His dad's an extremely cruel man who created this machine, they called it the dragon, that would just shoot these balls relentlessly at him. His dad made him hit tennis balls, uh, 2,500 tennis balls a day by the time he was at age six. And he never, his dad never said an encouraging word, never let him take a break. But his uncle, Andre Agassi's uncle, was exactly the opposite. He was fun-loving. He, he would always laugh. They would have these wrestle fights. And the best of all, Andre and his uncle would scare each other, which is a great thing to do. Anybody should do that. It's fantastic. And so one day, Andre, here's his uncle. Uh, here's the gate out in the, the yard coming, coming in. And so he knows who my uncle's coming. So he hides behind the door. Door opens. Andre jumps out and screams him, ah! But it's his dad. And his dad punched him in the face. And he said, what the hell is wrong with you? But he didn't say hell. And he left Andre crying. Andre went to his room, cried for a couple hours. His dad came in, said, get up, we're going to hit tennis balls. Didn't say a word, didn't apologize. Made him hit tennis balls for about 30, 45 minutes. And finally, in defiance, Andre, he just hits another tennis ball over the, over the fence, which is big time no-no. His dad just stops. Says, what the hell is wrong with you? Doesn't say hell. And so Andre just runs inside. And he runs crying into his mom's arms. And he's sitting in his mom's lap. Mom says, what's wrong? He says, Dad yelled at me again. He asks his mom, what's wrong with Dad? Why is he so mean? You know what his mom said? His mom said, well, honey, that's just how he is. He can't help it. That's it. Now, I don't claim to know all the complexities of Andre's parents' marriage. I'm sure it's more complex. There's more to the story. But here's what I do know. Andre's mom in that moment is tolerating injustice. That is not what leaving vengeance to the Lord means. We don't tolerate or put up with or turn a blind eye to injustice. You see, part of what it means to be a Christian is we actually seek and secure justice in ways that we can here and now. So we try to support the stop of the human sex trafficking trade. We try to stand up and speak for those who don't have a voice. We try to stand up against racism in any form, in any way, wherever we see it. We have to take action. So Andre's mom, she had every right to take action. That African-American student had every right to file a formal complaint to a professor. Uh, those people who have, have experienced any sort of sexual abuse in any sort of relationship has every right to get out of it. I know it's not always easy to do, but leaving vengeance to the Lord, leaving revenge behind does not exclude action in some form. Here's the crucial piece. When we do this, when we seek justice, we do so without any revenge in our heart, without any bitterness in our heart, actually praying and hoping the best for the people who are hurting us, who are hurting others, hoping that they repent. Now, it's not easy to do that. And I know it gets messy and complex, but that's what we're called to do. 
So leaving vengeance doesn't mean we need to tolerate injustice. Here's what it does mean. Two things. First thing is we wait for justice with a capital J. Wait for justice with a capital J. So now we're called to seek justice. That's a lowercase j. Capital J justice is the final reckoning, so to speak, the day when God comes back, when Jesus returns to his creation to bring final judgment on sin and injustice, because that day's coming, whether we know it or not. In Luke 8, 17, it says, For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. See, the implications of this is all of the injustice that has ever been committed and that has been thrived and that has been hidden from the beginning of humanity and to the end of time, whenever that is, past, present, and future generations, all of that injustice is going to be brought to light. There's nowhere to hide. And every person who has ever lived, myself, all of us in this room included, we're going to have to stand before the king, before the judge. We're going to have to give an account See, God's going to know what we've done and what we haven't done, what we've thought, what we've said, what we haven't thought, what we haven't said. It's kind of sobering. It's kind of scary. And maybe that makes some of us uncomfortable, and I totally get it. This is not, you know, for some of us, this is not the kind of God we think we really want, the God who judges and is vengeful. And yet, this is actually the only way we're going to be able to leave revenge behind. Believing in this kind of God is the only way. Tim Keller says this in his great book, Reason for God. The human impulse to make perpetrators of violence, or uh, we could also say injustice, to make these perpetrators pay for their crimes, it's almost an overwhelming one. It cannot possibly be overcome with platitudes like, now, don't you see that violence won't solve anything? If you've seen your home burn down and your relatives hurt, such talk is laughable, and it shows no real concern for justice. I don't believe that there's a God who will eventually, if, sorry, If I don't believe that there's a God who will eventually put all things right, I will take up the sword and will be sucked into the endless vortex of retaliation. Only if I'm sure there's a God who will right all wrongs and settle all accounts perfectly do I have the power to refrain. See, we can leave revenge behind because we know that our king won't. He's going to do something about it. And so today we seek lowercase justice with a J without revenge and without bitterness, but in the long term, in the larger sense, we leave the capital J justice to God. Leaving vengeance to the Lord also means, this is the second one, that we need to forgive the person. We need to forgive the person of the persons. A guy named John Perkins, he's a key figure in the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s. On February 7th, 1970, he's returning from a civil rights march in a small town in Mississippi, and he was doing this with some college students, and so they went back to the university in two vans. There was a van of college students ahead of him, and then his van, he had a couple other college students. And this first van gets pulled over by some state troopers, and the cops come back to his van and say, hey, we got to take him into the local jail. you got to come with us. So they follow this van and the troopers to the jail, and they get taken out of the jail, and, and John Perkins is taken out of his car. He's handcuffed. He's searched. He and all the other students are taken into the jail and are met with 12 state troopers, and then they are proceeded to be beaten within an inch of their life. Stabbed with forks, stomped on, punched. John Perkins went in and out of consciousness. It was horrible. But for him, it turns out this was a turning point in his ministry. It's what he says. I hope it's on the slide back there. If it's not, it's okay. You can just listen. For the first time, I saw what hate had done to these people. 
These policemen were poor. They saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. The racism made them feel like somebody. When I say that, I just couldn't hate back. I said to God that night, God, if you will let me get out of this jail alive, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. Hope you see the point. The only way that John Perkins would be able to go out and preach to the very people that beat him with an inch of his life and other people like him, the only way he can do that is if he forgives them. Matthew 18, then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus says as many, oh, Peter says as many as seven times, and Jesus says, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Another place in the gospel records the same story. The apostles, their response to Jesus' teaching is increase our faith. Increase our faith. The Bible's not naive to the claims that it is making. The disciples realize how impossible that is, how hard that is. And I I've actually find great comfort in that, knowing this is what we're called to, and yet it's so difficult. Forgiving somebody, it's not simply just a one-time decision as if you somehow, clouds part, it's this, oh, I forgive you, and then you move on with life. No, that's not it at all. It's a daily decision. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Take up your cross and forgive others. Some days it's easier, easier than others. Some days you feel it, some days you don't. But every single day, little by little, we're called to forgive. This is a daily struggle. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes time. It's a choice we have to make. We need help doing it. And that's really the million-dollar question, right? How the heck do we do this? How do we wait for justice with a capital J? How do we forgive other people when injustice is staring us, others that we know and care and love in the face? How do we do that? You know, um, David, that verse I'm going to put up here again. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrong you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. He says this to Saul when he's trying to kill him. How does he do it? He remembers two things about God. And we need to remember these two. Here's the first. We need to remember that God empowers his people. God empowers his people. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If and when we become a Christian and we decide to join God's people and follow Jesus, what we need to realize is that God has given us a part of himself. If our faith is in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is alive and well inside of us. Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Notice that phrase, intercedes for us. In other words, the person of the Holy Spirit helps us do things that on our own are impossible to do. Like, for instance, forgive others when they hurt us. That doesn't mean that this change, again, is automatically going to happen. Let me just ask the Holy Spirit to forgive. Oh, there it happened. I'm forgiven them. No, not at all. And it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's a little genie in the bottle where we ask for our three wishes and it just happens. No. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's God who in time, slowly but surely, is going to help us to do the impossible, the things that we cannot do on our own. God is empowering us to do that. And you know what? That actually gets noticed by people, and that's by design. How do you forgive somebody? I don't know, but gosh, God's helping me imperfectly, but trying to and meaningfully. That changes lives. That'll change the world. And it only happens because God is the one 
who's empowering us. You see, if we try to leave here and leave revenge behind on our own, we're not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, and you're not going to do it. If you've seen the movie uh, Three Billboards in Ebbing, Missouri, it's a great movie. You should, you should go see it if you haven't. It won some Academy Awards. story about a mom trying to secure justice for her daughter. If you've seen it, there's a character that quotes a sort of Proverbs proverb that captures just the tendency of a lot of the characters in the film. She says, anger begets anger begets anger. Anger begets anger begets anger. And as you see the film, you watch that play out in many ways, and it's true. But what we can also say is the exact opposite is also true. Mercy begets mercy begets mercy. You see, the Holy Spirit is the one who's empowering you and empowering me to show mercy and love and grace and forgiveness to those who are hurting us, to those who are perpetrators of injustice. So God empowers us. That's how we can leave vengeance behind. The second thing, here's what we need to remember about God. To leave vengeance behind, we gotta remember God is angry. We gotta remember God is angry at sin. He's angry at injustice. Much angrier than you. Much angrier than me. Very famous verse. Talks about who God is in the Old Testament. Exodus 34 verse 6 and 7, but we just got verse 6 up here. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Compassionate, yes. Gracious, yes. Devoid of anger, no. Slow to anger. So he's patient, but he's angry. And you see, in a profound way, Jesus is the embodiment of this verse. It's very natural to think of Jesus as he's compassionate and he's gracious and he's kind and he's merciful and he's meek and all all of that is very, very true. Amen to that. But we also need to remember Jesus is angry. The Apostle John in his gospel tells the story of when Jesus went and blew up the temple, so to speak. Let's read it. Verse 13, when it was almost time for Jewish... He didn't really blow the temple up, it's figure speech, uh, if you're listening. When it was almost time for Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at at tables exchanging money. Now, here's the deal. The temple is a big deal for an Israelite. This is where they go to meet God, to worship God as a people. And so what you need to do, part of that is you need to cleanse yourself of your sin. And so what you need to do is you need to have a sacrifice prepared as you go into the temple. And the priests would slaughter it the right way, say the right things for you. They would mediate the blessings of God. But essentially what's happening when Jesus enters this temple, it's a glorified Walmart. And the people who are selling these animals to people coming from all different parts of the world, they are overcharging them big time. Not to say Walmart does that, but you get the point. Overcharging them big time. Taking advantage of them. And this isn't just any people. These are God's own people called to be a blessing to the entire world. People are supposed to come and get a taste of what it means to be in a relationship with God, and yet here they are, getting overcharged, being taken advantage of, and Jesus will have none of it. Verse 15, so Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. See, Jesus was angry because injustice was flourishing in his father's house of all places. The poor were being charged, being taken advantage of, and Jesus could not stand it. He got angry. We need to be thankful. Sounds weird to say. We need to be thankful for that anger because that anger is what allowed him to endure the cross. 
You see, God could not and would not stand to live in a world of injustice, a world where his people, his children were being taken advantage of. God cannot stand to see kings that he put on the throne, kings like Saul, misuse the power that they had been given. He couldn't stand to see injustice abound, and so he did something about it. In his anger against injustice, God sent King Jesus. He's a better king than Saul. He's a better king than even David. And Jesus willingly went to the cross because that was the only way to guarantee the death of injustice once and for all. Believing this is the only way that we can leave revenge behind. And so as the music team's up, comes up, music team comes up, I want to close by reading again a prayer from Tim Keller. He's got this book called The Songs of Jesus. It's a little bit of a psalm every day, a little bit of a prayer. I came across this prayer as I was thinking about this and preparing for this, and it really stuck with me. I hope it, I hope it, it helps you, puts words to I think what a lot of us feel. It'll be up on the screen. Let me read it here. Lord, it feels like you are just looking on passively. But I know that ultimately there's no unanswered prayer, that you hear the desires of our heart and respond to my needs, our needs, in ways beyond my wisdom. So I wait for you in prayer, Lord. What do we do in the face of injustice? How do we deal with it? Rather than take revenge, we can leave revenge behind. Because together, by God's grace, he is the one who's empowering us. God is empowering us, and he's angry. And that's what we need to believe. That's what's going to change our hearts. That's what's going to change our lives. That's what's going to change our relationships. That's what's going to change Mizzou's campus and the world. So let's leave believing that. Let me pray. Father, we are saddened and angered by the injustice we see out there and in here. We know it's affects a little bit but we can't fully know the depth and the pain of the injustice that is going on don't really know the, the extent of the pain and the hurt that people are feeling even in this room right now but you do and so in this moment just now I pray that we would talk to you about that would name that let's do that in the quiet of our, quietness of our thoughts right now perfect, we're not perfect, and there's ways that we have not secured justice. We have committed injustice against you and against others, so we just, in the quiet of our hearts, we confess that to you now. Lord, give us the power to wait. Give us the power to forgive. Would you empower us to do that? come back. I pray this in Jesus' name.